Here is all you've ever wanted in entertainment in one superb show. Here is matchless story, suspenseful, terrifying, never so thrillingly presented. Here in breathtaking technicolor is superb spectacle and splendor and romance. Here is a chorus of a hundred voices, a ballet of a hundred dancers, a cast of a thousand. Starring Nelson Eddy in his most vigorous performance, lovely Susanna Foster, and Claude Rains in the most coveted role of the year as the Phantom of the Opera. My music! You've stolen it! You've stolen my music! <laughs> Welcome back to The Bloody Pit. I am Rod Barnett. I'm Troy Gwynn. And this is episode 150 of The Bloody Pit, which is, uh, I guess, a milestone. It is a milestone, 150. And in fact, in honor of the 150th episode of Bloody Pit, we are coming to you tonight in Technicolor. <laughs> yes, yes, I'm sure you can tell the difference. Yeah. There's, a, there's, there's a sharper... Yes. Uh, more more colorful way in which we will sound mm-hmm. to you, and I just want you to kind of soak that in because we won't have the budget for that to happen again for a long, long time. That's right. That's right. <laughs> there will be no there will be no sequel. <laughs> that's yes. We've Consider that. the Phantom crushed at the yes. end of this one. Uh, tonight we are continuing our series of 1940s Universal horror films, and in this this time out once again, we end up with a film. Um, and we knew these things were going to happen when we started mm-hmm. talking about those early Sherlock Holmes films and things yeah. like that. There's going to be the occasional movie that gets put under the umbrella of the Universal Horror films of the 40s that are not necessarily going to fit the quote-unquote horror end of the genre field yeah. easily. Right. And I have... I, or also just this whole 40s usual feel of being like a short... Saturday matinee, low budget programmer like so many other <laughs> yeah. do. That's none of those terms apply to this yeah, film. Yeah, the, yeah, the, the 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 joys from a uh, sixty five minute long uh, mummy romp. <laughs> yeah. This ain't got. Right. This is something. <laughs> this is completely different, folks. Yeah. This is uh, who? Let's just say I never. I, I honestly, completely had forgotten that this film was part of this run of movies, and mm-hmm. never thought that I would be uttering the words. Opulent, yeah, or yeah, 
over budgeted <laughs> or brain bendingly expensive <laughs> when talking about one of the movies mm-hmm. as part of the subset of these mm-hmm. shows. And gotta say, watching this on Blu-ray, I think this may be the first time I've ever seen this in high definition. Okay, uh, off of the off of the Blu-ray. In the mm-hmm. past, it's always been uh, always been the DVD. Mm-hmm. And I gotta say, wow. Yeah. Um, yeah. What a gorgeous, gorgeous movie. We're talking, of course, about the Phantom of, well, about sorry. Phantom of the Opera from 1943. This would be the remake of the silent classic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it is a gorgeous looking movie. It is. And is a full 30, well, hour and 34 minutes. Yeah, yeah. Which means it is an epic as yeah. far as these movies have been concerned. <laughs> uh, we're used to getting in and out of there in like no, 70, no, 70 minutes flat. <laughs> but not this time, buddy. You better strap yeah. in and bring the extra popcorn because it's going to last a while. As I understand it, it was Universal was only their second, I think, Technicolor yes. film after Arabian Nights, I believe, was the first one. Yep, and yeah. they, uh, they 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 gambled hard on this. They did, and uh, they did get a bunch of Oscar nominations and even actually two wins. Yeah, so good for them. Mm-hmm. Um, it is, it's it is a big budget film, and honestly, I think that it is this movie that we can. Uh, uh, I will use the word blame. For Andrew Lloyd Webber, so, <laughs> so yeah. there's that. I'm gonna yeah. I'm gonna use that word. Uh, your 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 choice of word for that sentence <laughs> right. may be different. Mm-hmm. I'm going with blame. <laughs> um, strangely enough, uh, I've always had fond feelings about this movie, but this is really the first time I've I've sat down with the thought of really mm-hmm. examining this movie. Critically, mm-hmm. uh, I, in the mm-hmm. past, I've just been, I've just been happy to soak up. Yeah. The enjoyment of the the melodramatic monster in the basement, mm. force, for, forcing uh, his will upon the, the professionals above above ground mm. kind of storyline, mm. and not really thought that much about it. Not that I was unaware. I mean, of course, let's 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 start off by stating that yes, the 1925 silent film is. Vastly superior. Yes, yes, it has never been topped. <laughs> no, and, and don't get me wrong. I don't. I don't consider it a flawless film by no. any stretch. I think it's too long. Yeah, but I still think that the major pluses in the twenty-five film are are huge. Yeah. Yeah. and I think that the the uh, let's put it this way: to to prefer the forty-three version over the twenty-five version, or even the 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 altered you know talky version that they put out in uh, twenty-nine. Of that film, to to prefer the forty three version, you have really got to have steeped yourself in either opera or mm-hmm. Andrew Lloyd Webber or something. I don't mm-hmm. know mm-hmm. Uh, because of this, the the changes made to the storyline. Don't get me wrong; both both films make changes to the novel in the first place, but. Yeah. The twenty five is closer, and the twenty five is an actual horror movie. Yeah, it is, and it's got it does have one of the classic set pieces. Like, you know, I reread actually the novel uh, before we. Uh, you know, in anticipation of the show here, you know, to, and uh, yeah, the the major set pieces from the novel that are in the the twenty, you know, the the, the in the twenty five version, you know, that's really just most of them aren't here. You know, they're just you know the the red the, the mask sequence, the you know the ball right. sequence, the uh, you know the 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 scorpion and the overturning the you know the the choose choose the scorpion thing, you know, yeah. and all that and all that great underground stuff, you know, through the. Um, you know the the where they're about to bake and then they're about to drown and all that stuff. You know it's, right, it's, it's right. isn't there. You know that's in the in the twenty five, but it's not in this version. Yeah, and you don't get the you don't get the gondola. 
you know, through you know through the sewers. Exactly, which is which you know, is such which a great is a, visual. Yeah, thing. which is a loss. But I have to say the 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 visuals of the uh, the underground in this, the sewers in this. Are really amazing. Oh, they are. They're, they're they gorgeous. Are. Yeah. I mean, they're, Once again, we're going to be using that word a lot. I mean, I, I, I think the strengths of this film are the, are visual. Yes. You know? Oh, very, that, mm-hmm. yes. Ex- exceedingly I mean, the, visual. Those Oscars were deserved. The ones that they won, uh-huh. or, or the ones that they got nominated for, deserve are very deserved for sure. The well, and, and, and I, not to uh, there's there's a part of me that almost wants to to make us back up and like do a complete review of the 25 film mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. because I haven't watched it all the way through in a very long time. Yeah. And um, makes me, you know, makes me want to like compare and contrast the the problems with each film. But well, honestly, I just as much I thought it'd be a great idea to have done that with this film and the Hammer version. You know, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Great to see do, that and, to do as well. You leapt ahead to exactly the problem that I would then have, which would be, well, if we're going to do that, then I would want to do the '62 Hammer version too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I would start feeling that that itch. Mm-hmm. To do well, let's well, let's, let's let's do that Robert Englund '89 version <laughs> yeah, just right. for the sheer yeah. hell of it. Yeah, and it's like, wait a minute, isn't there a TV version that they did in the early '80s? <laughs> so so it would it, there'd be this creeping thing mm-hmm. that would that would start to inch into this, but because we're gonna have to do variations like Phantom of the Paradise and things like that, which so. would make me pl- oh, plenty would, happy. I, I love no that problem. movie. Yeah, but, I think um, I haven't. I yeah, the the Robert Englund one I've not seen since it was in the theater and. I recall enjoying it, but that's been so many years. I mean, I really do need to rewatch that and just see how it strikes me now. You know, I didn't think it was great, but I seem to remember enjoying watching it uh, when I when I saw it on this theatrical run. But I haven't seen it since watching it on uh, probably VHS back in the nineties. Uh-huh. But I have <laughs> because I'm me. <clears throat> I do now own it on on Blu-ray. Now, do you? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because I was able to get it for some obscenely low price, and, uh-huh. and it's like, oh well, you know, I'll re- I, I, I kind of want to revisit that and see if mm-hmm. it's any good because my memories are so fuzzy. I, all I remember is all the the whining and bitching about the the. Uh, there's, it's so violent. It's so violent. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, it's a it's a horror movie made in yeah. the eighties. What did you expect? It to be? Yeah, it's. Uh, I have to be careful, or I'm going to go off on a rant about uh, the. Uh, the hipper that the hipper than thou desire to to dislike anything that's coming out right now. Yeah, right. <laughs> but the, uh, the the ridiculous nature of uh, the completest idea of yeah, let's cover all these these film versions of it. It's like it immediately would would expand to well TV versions and well yeah. wasn't there a television episode that kind of reference wasn't there a Doctor Who episode <laughs> that kind of referenced that Peter Davison I think I was pretty sure and, and it would be bad it would just turn into this kind of nightmare scenario yeah. of attempting to uh, be some kind of completist podcaster that and would it, fail and it would be the thing that would finally force me to watch uh, Argento's Phantom of the Phantom of the oh, Opera oh I forgot about which that which I've still never seen I know I'll see it someday but I'm sure you know I've heard oh, nothing s- but awful about it so. well, how, how sick am I I hate it and and yet I also have it on Blu-ray <laughs> of course you do <laughs> but I haven't watched the Blu-ray it's, yeah. it's been 20 plus years since I watched the thing forgive me I just want to watch it again to see if it sucks as hard as I remember it sucking <laughs> leave, me, leave me alone but, anyway, but you're I see right. You're about, judging. You're judging. Yeah. Me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's not uh, not only me, but the listeners all. Oh, out I, there I know they're all judging. They're all judging. Me. I, can feel, I can feel their disdain at a distance. Yeah. <laughs> the, but you're right about this film we're doing tonight. How you just don't mentally associate it with the '40s run, and and, no. and of course a lot of times it's because it's always. In, it usually is included with that run of, of class, just like the Wolfman is. I mean, it's yeah. uh, it, it. Those are always when they've done some. Every time they've done some major release of the 
you know, original classic monster films, the basic ones, the, the core films, they always throw this in with those. And, of course. And, uh, and so, yeah, it's, you, you know, you, you tend to think of the 40s films as all being films that didn't have Universal's full attention, you know, and, and uh, by that point. Uh, but this one certainly did, yeah. Yeah, they yeah. were still going to try and go for another A-list film, you know, is what they were trying to go for. Years. This this was this was a big deal for Universal, and uh, apparently it made them a lot of money, mm. which is great. But um, let's uh, let's talk about what we what we think of it in general. First of all, I do want to get out of the way some weirdness about it. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no spinning Universal globe at the beginning. <laughs> yes, and why is that? <laughs> because they didn't have the money to make it in color. <laughs> yeah, they never filmed that in color exactly. <laughs> it's like it's a budget problem. Yeah, what yeah. a surprise! But when you don't even have that at the first, then yeah. you really you know it just doesn't put you in that universal frame of mind. Like this is them in that yeah. world, I'm in that yeah. universe. There, it's, it really just feels kind of off in its own thing here. It's this weird thing. There were there were, there are a few films that I have always associated with the Universal horror run of movies in the 30s and 40s. That were actually not Universal films, mm. uh, because they were films that were made by other studios that Universal picked up and therefore were part of the Universal package mm. moving forward uh, for television and vi- and video releases as well. Uh, Island of Lost Souls was one mm. of those. Right, yeah. Uh, Murders in the Zoo, mm-hmm. I think, is mm-hmm. another. Mm-hmm. There are a few like that, that when you look into them, you're like, oh, no, no, this is a Paramount film. I mean, it still has the Paramount logo yeah. at the beginning of it, things yeah. like that. So these were not Universal films. They were they were purchased, bought yeah. outright by Universal long after the fact, or a couple of years after the fact. Mm-hmm. And so you get into the situation where there are these movies that aren't Universal movies that are that just for whatever reason, like they they did the VHS releases, and those would be part of those mm-hmm. those Universal Vault releases, those yeah. Universal you know horror releases, mm-hmm. whatever it was. And so in a way. This movie has always kind of felt like one of those in a in a, in a strange way, and it's not just the the absence of the spinning universal globe at the beginning. Mm-hmm. It is that it is so different. It is the it is that yeah. odd man out, especially mm-hmm. in the 1940s, right? When primarily we're talking about movies that were you know they were big movies. They were shot on a budget. People these were yeah. these were not movies that were going to get that extra day or that extra thousand bucks. These mm-hmm. are movies that had best get done on time and yeah. on budget. Yeah. And that is not the case with this movie, and that makes it, I mean, in many ways, feel a lot different. Now, whether that's good or bad, mm-hmm. that's a that's a conversation that we'll have as we go along sure. here. Yeah. Well, it's it's you know, they definitely were not interested in horrifying anyone with this film. Let's just get that out of the way right there. It's like it's, it's no, horror was not they what not. they had because once they bumped it up to that, this is a class production. You know, especially now when the yeah, heat was really on horror movies and the code was really very much in place yeah. and all that, they they were they were like, yeah, we are not this is we're not going to horrify people. Well, and they they had to they had to reshoot a couple of scenes just yes. because there was there was cleavage. too much cleavage. Yeah, exactly. On the on the on the star, and yeah. it's just like, oh, holy crap, really? Yeah, yeah. It's like, but okay, sure, whatever. So yeah. it's not that much of a surprise that you know how um, I died. There, there's a word that I was about to use there I'm not going to use. But it's not surprising that this is this feels like a very muted horror movie, mm-hmm. if it is a horror movie at all. Right, and that right. kind of becomes the debate for me is, how do you want to classify this? Yes, okay. I, I In the general sense, I'm going to call it a horror movie. Mm-hmm. All right? Mm-hmm. But, man, remember how we were t- we've, we've talked about how... Um, <laughs> When we covered uh, Captive Wild Woman, mm-hmm. and we're like, you know, somebody somebody got 
a, cap, a captive wild woman stuck in my circus movie. Or, yeah, you know, yeah. Somebody, right. you know what? Yeah. It's, it's, somebody got a mad scientist mm. subplot stuck into a, <laughs> into a circus picture. Yeah. This kind of feels like, wow, we got about 20% horror mm-hmm. stuck somewhere in this opera movie, <laughs> yeah. this, this opera melodrama, you know? <laughs> and then uh, I'll be honest and tell you up front that I think that uh, some of the comedy in the movie wears pretty thin mm. pretty quick for me, mm-hmm. where... Mm-hmm. Uh, they'll 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 pull a joke and then they'll pull the joke again and then they'll pull the joke again mm-hmm. and it's like okay we're done mm-hmm. we've done the joke mm-hmm. the joke was mildly haha mm-hmm. the first time I'm willing to give you an amusing thing there but repetition on mm-hmm. this particular joke is not making it funnier for me yeah. you need to kind of grow the hell up <laughs> but, you're uh, are you referring to some of the scenes between the suitors the two suitors for Christine there I'm or? talking about two grown men who can't negotiate a doorway yeah yeah yeah, <clears throat> yeah it's it's, yeah. <laughs> it's you know, the first time okay good yeah first time okay ha huh? that was that was that was amusing. the second time yeah. if, if, if if on the second time then the woman steps in and like kicks open the other door looking mm. at them like they're morons mm. yeah okay good when we get to the third time <laughs> it's just like no, it's not being funny. It's already <laughs> stopped being funny. Mm. This is this is not like this is not the group thing where we go from laughing to horrified mm. to then laughing. No, we just we just we were just like okay, yeah. mildly amusing. Move yeah. on. <laughs> so there are things like that in the movie that, mm-hmm. and here's a, here's a term here's another term besides opulent that I didn't know that I would ever throw out when mm. talking about these movies. Tonally off. Mm-hmm. That is an element of these movies. Yeah. For instance, the 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 doorway joke mm-hmm. would have been a perfectly acceptable little bit of comedy, little 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 laugh thing, mm-hmm. visual laugh thing, within a melodrama. Mm-hmm. Okay, where we have two rival suitors for uh for the female lead. Yeah. But when we're also we're also witnessing a guy get acid thrown in his face. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And then wash it off in sewer water. Yeah. <laughs> Trust me. Yeah. Something's going on here, and mm-hmm. the tone, the tonal shifts are a little mm-hmm. wide. Let's put it that yeah. way. Yeah. Well, you know, again, you you got, I mean, you've got this scene. You got a scene where a chandelier is dropped on an audience of people, and it's none it's, of them, no, as far as we can tell, get squished. But none of them are ever shown. I mean, they yeah. they managed it. They show it so much off frame that it's obviously like, okay, we want to have this from the story, and you know, and we want to have this big dramatic scene, but we don't want you to really know that he just crushed thirty or forty people to death. <laughs> so we're going to have to just make it look like everybody just got out of the way in time, you know. We're, which we're is going not to, we're going to sele- very selectively edit at what yeah. we show here. And, yeah, man. yeah. <laughs> it's it's kind of weird, but we're we're getting ahead of ourselves. Real quick, let's talk about uh, some of the cast uh, some of the cast and crew. First of all, the director Arthur Lubin uh, made man sixty plus movies, yeah, yeah, hundreds of episodes of television. We have him to blame for I think uh, Mr. Ed and uh, Francis, Francis the Talking Mule. <laughs> Uh, once created again. not one but two talking talking, talking. four legged <laughs> creatures. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. Uh, he felt lucky to be assigned to do this picture, but he was very upfront about the reason why he would be chosen for doing something like this because mainly he was very good at getting things done on right, budget. Right. And in yeah. a lot of cases, it would be argued by people who are willing to argue this, and I, I can see what they're saying, is that that meant to a large degree. With Arthur Lubin, you were getting a film that uh, was in the can, yeah, yeah, but not necessarily shot in a way that would be the best way to shoot the film. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's he's. I think 
he's I think he was kind of known as for being efficient, yeah, not flashy. You know, the stuff he turned out was not going to be come off as being amateurish, you know, or, no. or being inept, but but just not. I mean, probably the most audacious shot in this entire film is the opening scene with the opening crane shot that that's really pretty effective, where it comes off the stage and all the way up right. through the opera. But you don't really get. And from what, and, and even Lubin seems to have said that that was the idea of the uh, the cinematographer or the, or the camera operator. Mm, it yeah. was it wasn't an idea wasn't that he came to the to the film with. It was some. It was one of the the technicians right. who was a you know a storied professional who was like, mm-hmm. hey, let's we can do this. We you know we can do this and it would look amazing. Yeah. And there are sequences in the movie that I I think are absolutely beautifully shot. Oh God, that I yeah, think are, yeah. that are that not not just that they're beautiful to sit, mm-hmm. to look at. They're just colorful or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, incredible sets, incredible costumes. That's just, that's just a given with the amount, the amount of budget that's thrown on this thing. But there are some really interesting choices in how to set up some shots. And then there are other times when you're like, wow, is that how you're going to show us that image? Mm-hmm. Is that mm-hmm. really? Mm-hmm. And I, I I fear that I'll forget some of them as we go along, but. The big standout for me is, don't you think there might have been a better way to shoot the acid in the face scene than the way we get it? Yeah. It's, it's a little... I, the first word I was going to use was flat. Yeah. But then over yeah. the past few days, thinking about it, it's like, it's it's almost a, it's almost like that was the master shot. Yeah. And then they lost they, they, all they the... Cl- they lost, other angle or yeah, something. They the, they yeah, they lost the cut-in shots uh, that, would sh- that would show yeah. us other... Other uh, angles of this of this sequence, and it's just like they lost them, and they just went, "Oh, well, we'll just use the master." It's kind of sad in a way yeah. because it's it's like the big moment, you know, where it's, it's the moment when the film changes. It's mm-hmm. the moment when the film goes from what it has been, which is a uh, a kind of sad sack melodrama about this this man who's been dismissed from his job mm-hmm. because he's getting older and has developed arthritis and can't mm-hmm. do any can't play the violin as well as he as he once did. Right. That's the moment when that's the moment. This is the moment of violence where he 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 is attacked. This man who he thinks is st- is stealing his music and then gets acid thrown in his face. And it's it's not well. I'm just gonna say it outright. It's not well blocked. Mm-hmm. It's not well shot. Yeah. It doesn't seem as if they thought it through in a way that would make it the the shock moment that it kind of needs to be. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, there are two or three more things like that in the movie. That's the that's the first one in the movie where I go. There's there's something missing from this, mm-hmm. and I have to admit that I didn't think that in the past. Uh, when I look back at the, my my thoughts about this movie in the past, when I've seen it, you know, over the years, I've probably watched it five or six or seven times. I don't know, mm-hmm. but I've never thought specifically about that scene until going through it, you know, with a critical eye this time and realizing that's not. That's not as good as it needs to be, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it's yeah. and it's it kind of stands out in a way because watching it on this you know watching it on the Blu-ray where it's just like you're you're blown away, just kind of yeah. bowled over by how beautiful the movie oh, is. I know, yeah. And and to it almost it's almost as if it makes the uh, some of the shall we say less effective directorial choices kind of stand out, mm-hmm. and that's mm-hmm. one that I would lean heavily toward pointing out is. Not the way I think you would have gone if you had yeah. thought long and hard about the way to shoot that yeah. sequence. Yeah, there are a few others. There are a yeah. few others. I don't. I don't know that we needed the extra time spent showing him. You know, at, right before he goes down in the sewers, the I know this sounds weird, but it, it 
it slows the scene down to watch him reach up and turn the flame down on the lantern. It's like, just grab the lantern. Yeah. <laughs> Why are we yeah. taking the yeah. time to do this? Have the lantern mm-hmm. not be lit yeah. and just reach up and grab the lantern because he needs to take a lantern down with him into the yeah. sewer. Yeah. It, it's, it's it, like I say, second time through that, you know, just watching it for, to, to, to do this, it's just like, I'm, I, I started to wonder, am I getting hypercritical? Yeah. Because I'm already yeah. thinking, uh-huh. well, don't put your face in that, that sewer water or you're going to die from an infection, yeah. <laughs> dude. But there's a lot to like about the film, but I found myself being pickier and pickier. But honestly, the high points of this movie still, once again, won me over. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i tell you what, let's, uh, I know we're already talking a lot about this. Let's take a quick break. Mm-hmm. We'll come back and we'll, and we'll go through a, a, a brief uh, synopsis of the film and uh, talk uh, talk a bit more in detail about the things that we like and the things that uh, we kind of wish were better in the 1943 Phantom of the Opera. Right. Welcome to Free For All, an episode-by-episode podcast about one of the most endlessly fascinating television shows ever made, The Prisoner. Each week we'll be taking an in-depth look at the 17 episodes of The Prisoner. I'm Chris Bainbridge, Senior Lecturer in Broadcast and Creative Media, and I'm also a Prisoner devotee. And I'm Kai Ross, a film writer, restaurateur, and Chris's mate, which is how I got this gig. (laughs) So if you want to find us on Facebook, you can find us by searching for Podcast Free For All. And if you want to look for us on Twitter, we are Free For All Pod. And feel free if you want to comment, join the group, send messages, all that stuff. Did you ever see a film at such a young age it left you traumatized with cinematic wounds? Ah, uh, necrophilia. Uh, yeah. uh, uh. It's a dead issue, man. Don't don't push it. Cinema PsyOps is a weekly podcast documenting an ongoing experiment on the mind of an unwilling test subject. No one should have to watch this movie. Oh, no one should have to watch this <laughs> No one should have to watch this movie. Surprisingly, it's not a topic that a lot of people really want to tackle. I'm shocked, prudes. I know, really. Right? the next sexual frontier that no one wants to explore. I am, in the most sincerest of senses, disappointed in you. It takes a powerful goddess like Connie, jam her arm down the monster's throat and kill it. I'm still tripping out over that. Even as a kid, I was like, I gotta find a girl like that. Every week, I I get a new look of disappointment that I never thought I could get out of it. It's unimaginable. At 12 years old, you should not be watching this movie. Obviously. At 13, you should not be. 14, you shouldn't be. I'm not entirely sure even 17-year-olds should be watching this just because you're offended by something doesn't mean that you have the right to demand that it doesn't exist. Watching this film again, I had all of this like little nerd glee with everything that kept little history doll yeah, popping up absolutely. at you. So I totally loved this film. Hey, I know why you you know, couldn't see that. It's because your brain's warped watching this shit at 12 years old. Yeah, this is this is a rough movie. I told you ahead of time when we were getting ready to do it that it was. How did be a rough you watch movie. this shit at 12? Because physical wounds heal, cinematic ones don't. Listen to Cinema Psyops. Hi, I'm Ben from the Diecast Movie Review Podcast, which is done by myself, my sister, and my father, where the genre of the movie is decided by the cast of a die. The categories are horror, drama, comedy, action, sci-fi and fantasy, animation, and musical. 
also on occasion will have a special episode dedicated to conversations with creators, directors, actors involved in the production of movies. Join us and see what movie we pick next. All right, so uh, 1943 Phantom of the Opera. I'm going to use the, uh, the description of the, of the plot from the Universal Horrors book. So here we go. The story of Phantom of the Opera is set in Paris in the late 19th century. Enrique, or Enrique, is it Enrique? It's Enrique. Well, anyway, his last name is Claude Anne. It's played by Claude Rains, the great Claude Rains, also known as the Invisible Man. He uh, He's a Paris Opera House violinist, and he's been that for the past 20 years. And he suffers a mental breakdown after he's discharged on account of an arthritic condition that has adversely affected his performance. I have to say, that whole opening sequence... There's a, first of all, there's a lot of music in this movie. Yes, there okay? is. Yeah. There's, uh, I, I used to hear it argued that the movie would be the right length if they carved 20 minutes of music out of it. <laughs> but that does kind of defeat the purpose of having mm. these humongous sets and the, mm. this huge cast. Yeah. And the idea that what they're trying to do with this version is set this thing in a very specific place yes the almost the entire film takes place in the opera house yeah and they're giving you what the 25 version couldn't give you which is an opera yeah you know, we're giving you music yes actual exactly. music yes and you know and from what i'm from what i'm told actually performed by the actors yeah. that are performing on screen yeah i mean i'm you know in general i'm not a huge opera fan but i don't have an aversion to it at all i enjoy some operas you know and, and it doesn't I don't cringe when they do opera scenes in films. You know, now I probably now if I'd seen this when I was a real little kid, sure. Oh, and yeah. I'm waiting for the Phantom to appear. I probably would have squirmed a bit. But again, not knowing much about opera, uh, um, I, I still I didn't find the scenes of the opera scenes hard to get through. I mean, it felt to me like it was being well done. It felt to me yeah. like, a, like 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 for opera, this is sounds good. They seem sung well. The you know the visually amazing costumes and all that, and and you know it didn't it didn't it wasn't a drag on the film to me when that would happen. I agree, and I think that uh, the the moment in the film, which is later in the movie, the moment in the film where our the female lead gets the opportunity to step up and prove herself mm-hmm. in front of an audience, is extraordinarily effective. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, it really does feel like that moment when a, when a person gets their opportunity mm-hmm. and really hits those high notes, mm-hmm. literally, yeah. <laughs> really oh nails God. it. You yeah. know, so. Back to the back to the description of the of the plot. Uh, Claudine, that's the Claude Rains character, has spent his last nickel advancing the singing career of operatic understudy Christine Dubois, played by Susanna Foster. Christine has no idea that the shy, reclusive Claudine is her benefactor. Except for exchanging an occasional pleasantry, they are virtual strangers to each other. Now let's take a quick pause. Mm-hmm. It has been stated by Susanna Foster years after the fact that. And this is backed up by several early drafts of the script before this mm-hmm. film finally went before the cameras. Is while filming the movie, they could not make a very specific t- decision, and they kind of played it both ways until yeah. they were shooting the movie. Mm. And even apparently while they were shooting, the movie. yeah, even some scene shot that kind of yeah, yeah, and we and that is what is the relationship mm-hmm. between Claudine and Christine. And of course, in the uh, in the original in the original novel, it's one thing. In the twenty five version, it's pretty much the same thing. Yeah. But in this movie, there was a decision made initially through several drafts of the script mm-hmm. 
to turn this movie into slightly a, a, to, into something different and yeah. to, to actually give the Phantom a reason for his interest in Christine beyond his love of her voice and her his desire for her to succeed, mm-hmm. for her to be the diva. Yeah. And that is that Claudine is actually the, the character's father. He's actually mm-hmm. Christine's father, who years ago, for whatever reason, had to abandon his daughter. Mm-hmm. And this has been his way for years now of taking care of her, which is to fund her training to become the success she wants to be. But if you, you could, you could think to yourself, you maybe you've watched this movie one or two times. This would be news to you. Because, oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, it's it's excised yeah. from the movie. Mm-hmm. And it's also kind of weird in that the way they they had the, the, the final scenes play between those two characters. Yeah. It's hard to know whether or not they were they were gonna they were gonna go yeah. with the father daughter storyline, and he's just crazy. Yeah. Or if they were going to go with the kind of older man infatuated with the younger girl yeah. idea. Yeah. And they, they they seem to have kind of tried to split things down the middle while shooting, mm. and then in the edit decided we're not gonna talk we're not gonna have him be her father. Yeah. But I have to say, I think that's a mistake. Me too. <laughs> uh, it seems me too. to me that that it that put, putting that in as the motivating factor for his actions mm-hmm. really that that does more to generate sympathy for him as uh, yeah, a character absolutely. than anything else absolutely. could have. Because otherwise, you're right. It, it the way it comes off is is kind of like a salacious, you know, uh, old you know, kind of old man's obsession with. Yeah. An eighteen-year-old woman. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I agree, and and it also would explain a couple of things here. I'll, let's, I'd like to go ahead and talk right here. I think it's a good place to talk about the casting of the Phantom. I love Claude Rains. He's great. Claude Rains, an amazing actor. Yeah. I think it goes a long way towards explaining. I still had some some questions about, and you may have in your research may have some answers I don't have. I know the audio commentary by, by Scott McQueen, which is really good on this Blu-ray. You know, has yeah. some good information. But one of my first questions off the bat. Was uh, well, I just thought, okay, they surely offered this to Cheney Jr. first. I mean, how could you? How could anyone miss the uh, chance to hype? You know, the fact that Cheney Jr. in the role that his father made great. Then we find out that Cheney wanted. Cheney, and I was thinking also, you know, Universal was pushing Cheney as their oh, their course. monster he was, man. He was the big star. Yeah. Point. Then find out that Cheney Jr. apparently wanted this role really badly. And so they didn't apparently so, him. yeah. And I was, you know, so I'm sitting there thinking, you know, you know, but then it's revealed. Then as it was revealed that what the the original plans were going to be for the relationship between the Phantom and Christine, I thought like, okay, it may have been thought that Cheney Jr. was too didn't look old enough to be her father, and also that Reigns is able to come off as more fatherly. Yeah. In his portrayal, which I think would be true, you know, I think I think Cheney Jr. you know would have done a, a good job, you know, and I can think of some other actors. I thought about Conrad Veidt maybe, but see, I'm not even sure if Veidt was even still. I know he died that year because he had just made Casablanca. Yeah, he just made Casablanca and with may, Claude Rains because that's what Rains yeah, made. Yeah, and he may have actually already had had he died in '43. He may have even died before this film. But I, I thought Conrad Veidt, I could see could have done the role very well too. True, they true. may have they possibly might have thought he was a little too Germanic maybe to but you know to to be convincing as her father but I think if you're going with that idea I can see how Reigns would be the ideal casting for that and it also would help to get past the fact that you know Reigns is a little on the short side he's yes, not he physically imposing 
And, you know, there's some of those scenes where he's kind of leading Christine alone and like he's, he's abducted her and taken her from, you know, from the the opera and he's taken her in, into his, his lair. And there's sort of, I'm, I'm sitting there thinking a lot of times like, you know, I think you could really just cold cock this old guy and get out of there. You know? And I mean, <laughs> she really thinks like she's, I don't know. And so, but if, if they were going with the story that she, by that point, might even know that he was her father or something, it might explain why she's not actually right. trying to hurt him or trying to free herself, why she's kind of half... And even more influenced by, you know, maybe that connection that they might have, you know. that it, So, yeah, I think it would have been a better way to go to have stayed with that storyline if you're going to have Reigns as the Phantom, you know. Well, yeah, and, and plus, I mean, it, you're right, because it does feel as if there's some, kind of something missing when you think about her willingness to be led down to those catacombs. There are moments in there that feel like we're excising something that would have drawn her to trusting him just a little bit more you know and if there was originally in the script a you know Luke I am your father moment yeah right. I mean you know if, yeah. if, if there was some hint even if he just said something like do you, do you have any memories of your father mm-hmm. you, you know something, something like yeah. that anything to indicate to her that he might yeah. know something even if he's not confessing who he is mm-hmm. that might give her some uh, some real reason to kind of go along longer than she should have until it's too late. Yeah. But uh, that, I think, yeah, I agree with you. I think it was a mistake. Yeah. I think that if the film just spelled it out, if they just, you know, if they just left that, it's not even spell it out, if they left that in instead of eliminating it, mm-hmm. I think the film would play better. Yeah. Not just on the sympathy, just not on the sympathy end either. I think it would play better because then you would not have that uh, very, that very strange feeling of uh, kind of, kind of sexual angst. Yeah, right. Uh-huh. Because, I, I, it, it, that's that's not what this character. It's not what he's ever felt like. Mm-hmm. He's never felt like a a, a a man who's dangerous in that way. No, he's a man who's clearly he goes in, he he goes into a rage mm-hmm. when he thinks he's 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 his music has been stolen from him. Yeah. Now, the fact, I, I think the movie, it's definitely a 1940s movie because he goes into a rage, but it's a misunderstanding. He doesn't, he's not, he's, he's not yeah. aware yeah. of the facts. He thinks this music's being stolen from him when quite the opposite is happening. In the other room, yeah. Franz Liszt is yeah. playing his music and going, this is amazing stuff. This guy's going yeah. to, this guy's future mm-hmm. is made. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't have that piece of information, and therefore flies into a rage. Yeah, it's it, it's a it's it's the character flaw that I think would have been beautiful to play if the script were smart. It would have been the thing that he knew enough of about himself mm-hmm. to separate himself from his child, to not be part of her yeah. her uh, her upbringing, mm-hmm. because he feared that part of himself that is capable of flying into those rages and becoming... I mean, he yeah. kills several people in this movie. And I feel like we should have gotten a little bit... Maybe they should have hinted a little bit more at that... Yeah, like you said, yeah. something to have hinted at that rage before he actually goes into the rage that... Where he attacks the guy and he gets the acid splash on his face. I mean, right. something to show that he's... he's as as a, While he's a well-meaning and maybe good-hearted person in some way, that there's some part of him that's a little unhinged, that's quick to trigger anger you know yeah and uh, but up to that point in the movie Mm -hmm. all we've seen is a sad man Mm -hmm. who's honest enough with his boss Mm -hmm. he's tricked his boss he he plays that lullaby Mm -hmm. in front of his boss who's kind of called him on the carpet because he thinks he thinks 
that he's his playing is off. Yeah. And he's fooled him, and he can't even allow that to go. He has to confess. He says, "I pick I pick that piece because I can play it very well because it's a it's a simple melody." Yeah. You're right. Mm-hmm. I, I I'm not as good as I used to be. So everything we've seen, his his in one interaction just before that with the Christine character, where it's clear he he cares about her, but doesn't know how to express himself at that point in the story. We don't know what the reasoning might be. Mm-hmm. And so the moment he flies into that rage, that is the first non-sweet moment with this yeah, guy. Right. Non yeah. non-moment of of, of even just sadness. Yeah. We see him in his little German expressionist design <laughs> apartment, hovel, hovel yeah. of an apartment, oh. you know, dealing with it, dealing with the, his uh, landlord. He's got back rent due on yeah. it. It's like, yeah. Oh, I, I love that. One little touch I love about that scene is the cat on the windowsill that rose. Yes. That, you know, because you always think of Paris, roofs of Paris, you know, and the cats on there. Uh-huh. And now yeah, I'm yeah. assuming that's intentional, but part of it is like thinking like, what if that was an accident? <laughs> you know, just some studio cat wandering around, but it's a perfect little touch. There's this little cat wandering outside there on the windowsill, you know. Well, see, the, 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 thing that, the thing that occurred to me was that I wondered... I really did wonder if actually the cat was supposed to be in the scene longer and they just couldn't keep couldn't <laughs> can, wrangle can, the damn can, thing. Can, just, just, yeah. you, you got about like those three or four seconds. That's all you get. <laughs> <laughs> because it's a cat. Damn. Yeah, exactly. Did you bring up an interesting thing about the plot, though, as a... Uh, with this is that uh, you know in the original Phantom novel you know he's just that way from birth all his life yes, you know yes. and he, I, he was he was deformed and, yeah and but most of the Phantom movies that were made after it are pretty much the House of Wax story you know there's usually right. and in most cases it's a villain who actively does, does something, something you know yeah. and this is one where there's not really a villain well, boy, boy in the Hammer version oh is my there gosh ever, yeah is well, there ever a villain yeah yeah so but but there's really not a villain in this film you know there's really everything as you said kind of happens by by kind of a series of misunderstandings, you know, right. accidents there. Um, but getting, I thought it was really interesting in the um, Scott McQueen in his commentary where he says that it was generally felt that, and I, and I don't know what this kind of says about humanity about you, but it's, they felt that people would be more sympathetic for to towards the Phantom if they first showed him as a normal man who gets disfigured. Than to have portrayed him as somebody who's that way from birth, and I thought this thing sounds like one's just as horrible as the other. Yeah. Why would one be preferable to the other? But isn't that weird? The way their view of, of, of people, human nature, was like we got to first see him as a, as one of us, normal, and but, then but before we show him as a freak. Yeah, exactly. For us what? to feel sorry for, I was like, really? Okay, <laughs> that's not that's not how my sympathy or no. empathy. That's yeah. not my empathetic nature. That's not how it yeah, works. Yeah, I kind of feel like someone born with a skull face from their childhood but that's pretty so I think that's that'd be pretty sad, sad. man I'm gonna like try to buy them a meal and see if they're okay I mean it's like are you alright we want a sandwich crap <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I was good wasn't I must you girl must be biting his nail I'll oh, let him he'll come crawling back to me on his hands and knees confessing the whole thing and begging my forgiveness <laughs> Christine Dubois will sing tomorrow night. Leave Paris. This is your last warning. Take off that proper mask.
monsieur. Madame Biancaroli and her maid have been murdered. Murdered? Well, after he's dismissed from his job, uh, he's in desperate need of money. So Claude Anne drops in on the music publishing house of uh, Monsieur Playel, played by, Mile, played by Miles Mander, who we've seen mm-hmm. in Blue Bajillion mm-hmm. movies, uh, with whom he has left his crowning achievement, a piano con- concerto, and he's uh, he's been hoping for uh, eventual publication, and therefore to have essentially kind of a, a pension for his old age. Mistakenly, believing that his work has been stolen, Claudin flies into an insane rage and strangles the publisher. In retribution, the publisher's assistant throws acid into Claudin's face, sending the violinist rushing out into the street screaming in agony. Now they point out here in parentheses, though the acid hits in uh, Enrique dead on, only half of his face is burned, and the hands he holds to his face are unaffected. Now this is this, this is true. This, this is a, but I would just like to point out one thing: mm-hmm. it's a movie. It is a movie. It's a movie. And the the bit of makeup that they did give him is is pretty hideous. You know, it's, it's, it's hideously like, effective. It's, it's, yeah. it's true that I think you know Reigns was not up for being having the full makeup that they had originally wanted to do, you know, and, and, and a lot of actors made that choice, you know, had they, if they had that much clout, you know, they, they could say like, no, I really don't want this much, you know, tone it down a little bit, you know, but the part of his face that is disfigured is, is pretty, pretty extreme. I mean, it is pretty True. horrific. Well, uh, mon- uh, well, he's pursued by the police and takes refuge in the sewers. Months later, the opera house is haunted by the presence of an uninvited guest. Mm-hmm. His petty thefts drive the operator's directors to distraction. Now, I have to admit, I love all of the scenes between the two guys who are in charge of running the opera house. Oh, yeah. You have yeah. the one guy who won't sit down uh-huh, and is right. constantly freaking. And the other guy who also almost never seems to like raise his voice and never mm-hmm. gets out of his chair. Yeah. He's just like very calm. Mm-hmm. You know, we'll deal with. Yeah. Okay, let's do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's like, ah. What I love about that is that that's actually good. I don't know if that's mm-hmm. from the script or if that was a directorial choice, but that shows you how yeah. these men have mm-hmm. been business partners yeah, right, for, exactly. for years. Yeah, yeah. The uh, <laughs> well, Christine also feels the stranger's presence, but his influence on her has always been of a positive nature. In other words, there are all these rumors about there being this, you know, mm-hmm. phantom that mm-hmm. lurks around the uh, the the opera house. Uh, and uh, once again, there's a there's a little bit of comedy there with uh, which one is it? Is it is it Edward Bloomberg? I mean Edward Bromberg, hmm. the uh, the actor who uh, always does the thing where he's like trying to trying to give a description of the Phantom. And he's like he's got this long nose and a big, and a big beard, <laughs> yeah, yeah. and he makes these gestures with his face that you know come back to bite him later on when right. he does this in front of someone who's wearing you know false makeup for the mm-hmm. stage and looks exactly like that. You're right. <laughs> Uh, well, when te- uh, when tempestuous Madame Bien Bien Corella, uh, who uh, is the uh, the diva, basically. Uh, the, the diva of yeah. the of the of the opera, mm-hmm. uh, played by Jane Farrar, she uh, she was although she was the niece of an opera uh, legend, uh, she or she's the only one of the three leads who sings whose voice is actually dubbed. Yeah. She was not a singer. Yeah, she suddenly falls ill in the midst of a performance. Uh, <clears throat> Let's back up there. Mm-hmm. Suddenly falls ill. Yeah. The Phantom drugs her. Yes, yeah. There's a, there's a cup she has to drink from as part mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. her performance on stage, and he drugs her so that she'll be sick, so mm-hmm. that Christine will have to, as her understudy, step in. Uh, 
that that bit of writing just seems like no no, no let's go ahead and tell them what what happened here because it was definitely the phantom yeah. just a, you know drugging this chick to get her out of the way all yeah, right exactly let's let's make sure we get this on on record well christine takes her place and is an overnight success and mm-hmm. i have to say once again as i mentioned mm-hmm. earlier that is a scene where yeah they really sell yes the, that piece that section of music mm-hmm. that whole bit that whole sequence that is, first of all, excellent. Yeah. It sells this woman that is really bringing the goods. Mm-hmm. And we, as an audience of the film, are wowed. And so it's not a shock to watch right. that audience react to her mm-hmm. performance mm-hmm. the way they do. Yeah. So that is extraordinarily well done. That's just a good bit of filmmaking, in, in my personal opinion. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree. I think that's one of the better scenes in the film, actually. Yeah, yeah. Well, suspecting that she has been drugged, because she has... <laughs> Bian Corolli uh, charges uh, Anton Garon, that's the character played by Nelson Eddy. He is mm-hmm. the lead actor yeah. in the, the opera's performances. Mm-hmm. He's the star baritone of the opera. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she's, uh, she's, and he's been chasing Christine for quite some time. But she charges him with attempted murder. So, of course, they, they, bring, in the, they bring in the gendarmes. It's like, okay, yeah. okay, hold on. The crafty prima donna promises to withdraw the charge, providing that the understudy go back to the chorus permanently. In other words, yeah, yeah, she, she wants yeah. to eliminate that rival uh-huh, uh-huh. real quick. Yeah. Well, the next night, uh, our diva discovers the opera house phantom hiding in her dressing room. It is Claudine, dressed in a flowing cape and hat, his face hidden behind a stage mask. He warns the singer against standing in the way of Christine's success. When she defies him, the Phantom, once again, goes into a rage mm-hmm. and murders her and her maid. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So okay, we've got <laughs> we got three corpses to this guy's on this mm. guy's ledger. All right, mm-hmm. this is uh, it's pretty bad. <laughs> but it's once again, it's that uh, it's that flying into a rage thing, mm. and it's if his rage, if if that aspect of his character of this uncontrollable violence had boiled out of him after. The after his mm. face was scarred, after yeah. he yeah. lived for months with yeah. this, with this, you know, with this hideous thing that's happened to him and living yeah. in the sewers, and then he's he becomes someone who flies into rages. You'd be able to like, you know, the the, the story being told there is, ah, mm-hmm. so before he was a he was what we saw, which mm-hmm. was this very kind man yeah. who was you know going out of his way and very empathic and da da da, and then this thing happens to him and now he's had a personality change. But no, no, no. no. <laughs> He was a murderous guy yeah. <laughs> before he got the acid thrown in his face. As a matter of fact, right before the acid was thrown in his face. He was trying to strangle someone. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> and did. Or a kid did kill him. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I forget it's one of those like old movie uh, strangulations where you can strangle someone in 10 seconds and they're immediately dead. It's like, I have to admit, it's one of those things growing up watching old movies yeah. where I thought yeah. that accidental strangulation was going to be something I have to worry a whole lot about, like, you know, like quicksand. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, it's like you it, might it's accidentally strangle somebody yeah, to death. Yeah, I know. I might just put my hands around their neck and they just drop dead. They just drop over. Squeezing. Oh, shit, what'd I do? Oh, my God, what have I done? <laughs> right. Well, hoping to draw Claudine out into the open, uh, the, the, uh, the, the, two, uh, the two people who run the, uh, the, the opera house stage a fabulous new opera, La Prince, La, La, La Prince Masque de Cal... Basically, the... <laughs> the... The, the Caucasian prince's mask. There. I'll just say it in English. They refuse to heed the caped terrorist warnings and cast Madame Lorenzi, who's another actress, opposite 
uh, Anatole, that's the Nelson Eddy character, mm. basically taking both actresses, you know, both the yeah. diva yeah. and Christine off the stage mm-hmm. to try to provoke him. Midway through the performance, the crazed Claudine severs the chain supporting the massive chandelier, sending it hurtling down on the heads of the hapless audience. So I guess he was upset. Yeah, a little bit. Little seems, bit. Uh, seems angry. Yes. Seems uh, in a rage. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> but I do like the fact that it does take a good long while for him to get to saw through that chain. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That, uh, the, that's something that the film communicates pretty effectively. Yeah. In the ensuing melee, Claudine spirits Christine away and takes her deep down through the bowels of the theater to his hideaway in the sewers. The very well-lit sewers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Learning that his sweetheart has been kidnapped, Anatoly prevails upon Franz Liszt, Franz Liszt to play a passage from Claudine's belatedly appreciated piano concerto in the hope of attracting his attention. Anatoly and his rival for Christine's affections, Police Inspector Raoul Daubert, played by Edgar Berry, trace the sound of Claudine's piano playing through the sewers. Catching her kidnapper off guard, Christine tears off his mask, revealing the hideous scars left by the chemicals that burned his face. Anatoly and Raoul rescue her just before the crumbling sewer ceiling and walls give way. Claudine is buried under tons of rubble. Now, lots of details. Where do I begin? I know. (laughs) Oh, did I mention that we're going to spoil this? Yes, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Uh, Back up, folks, and and, and watch the film. If you don't know how Phantom of the Opera ends, I apologize. (laughs) Sorry. Maybe I should have said something up front way earlier than this. But just ask yourself: How does every mad scientist in his in his lab? How does every mad scientist film end? With, with well, let's, let's let's think about it. Yeah, the fact that we're watching a story and we're calling him a mad scientist means that we've already judged him and he's going to die. Yes, that's true. That's true. Once uh, <laughs> once yes. you've flown into a rage and yes. murdered a few people. You probably yeah. you, you know, it's, yeah. the, it's the 1940s. You got to yeah. pay. So. Yeah. Well, here's okay. Well, let's talk about this interesting conundrum, and this is why this is such a slippery slope, such a tangled web, you know, and, and other metaphors. That this gets into. <laughs> that this gets like, into sling, it's like another key. Uh, let me just throw another cliche. There, yeah. I know it's this cliche night for and, <laughs> on the bloody pit. <laughs> go to town. Go to town. Go. <laughs> so yeah. Okay. So. Yes, they because he has even no matter how sympathetic the character is because he has murder committed murder he must he must die I mean, that of was the rules of the code there. However, they were planning a sequel, so I know. So if they had done this sequel, then you know that's just sort of dancing around the whole like oh guess what he didn't really actually pay you know yeah because there's a sequel see because what I think would have been the perfect ending. Uh, although I didn't mind the coda, and I'll get to that in a second, but what I really would have loved to have seen is that image of the camera zooming in on where you just see his mask lying there next to his violin after everything's crumbled. Which is a great image. It's a great image. I kind of wish it was the last image of the film and all, but I think what I I also would have loved to have seen is an arm reach down and grab that mask because you never see his body, you know. It's like a hand reach down and pick up that mask just before it says the end. And you can even put a question mark on there if you were just speaking of cliches and how the end, you know, with or not putting, not even putting the end, the end on there, just like that fade into the credits. I think that would have been an awesome ending, but 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 again, that would have been going against the code. But why not if you're planning on bringing them back anyway? You know, it's it's. I just think that would have been the the cool way to have ended it. They're not not planning a sequel until they start seeing the return. (laughs) That is true. That is true. I didn't I didn't mind the um, like I said the coda. I didn't mind because uh, uh, I, I two things. One, I, I, I or maybe it's all one combined thing, but I thought it was okay that 
I like the fact that they never show who she chose between the two, her two suitors, you know. Well, she, that's just it. I love that ending because she doesn't choose either one of them. And I, that's what I love about it. That's what I was going to say is the fact that this is not a, not a common thing in films of this era is basically she's going on with her career yeah. rather than, you know, doing the old, like, choosing one and, like, you know, oh, you know, marriage and children is what I want. And just, you know, I mean, the fact that they're showing her she's she's leaving them dangling and going on with her during public. And I thought, now, that's a cool way to end the film. I still think it would be cooler if it had just ended where I said a minute ago with the uh, well, the I mask think, and the violin. I there. think it's a great yeah. ending mm-hmm. for a number of reasons, and mm-hmm. one of which not having him be her father. Mm-hmm. Submarine's one of my favorite reasons for that, which is that she is choosing the path that was laid out for her by her father. Yeah, yeah, right. She's not going. Mm-hmm. She's not doing what these men want mm-hmm. her to do. Yeah. She's choosing the path that her father put in front of her and yeah. gave her the choice to do. Yeah. And but by eliminating the fact that he's her father, we don't get that. that. We yeah. don't get that. And that mm-hmm. that and that is a real shame because yeah. that is a really that's a that's a great ending just because it, it wouldn't occur immediately to you mm-hmm. because it's not something she's going to like turn to the camera and say or say to any character at all. Right. And it's not even something that she might not realize until long after the fact, but mm-hmm. that would be what she's doing. Mm-hmm. The gift that her father gave her, she is accepting. That is her path. That is what she's going to do. Mm. But the, the movie mm. kind of neuters anything like I that. Know, yeah. I know. Are we going to get into the uh, the single gunshot that collapses the entire damn opera? <laughs> well, they do try to set it up by you know yeah. as the, as the, as the two love struck do- mm. doofuses mm. wind their way down through the sewers. Yeah, we see know, things. We see things are crumbling. Yeah. We see yeah. that you know this this section mm. of the sewers is rather. Mm. Uh, Mm-hmm. Or shall, shall we say uh, 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 not up to code they're, yes not up to code yeah uh, and, and so they set it up mm. but yeah the, the one gunshot that brings the entire I had to laugh it makes like, me laugh every time I see it I can't help it it's just like something <laughs> well I mean and, and, well, and something else is like of course we're, we're watching it the other night and I, I don't know if this is the first time Beth has seen this film it's probably not no. one of the things once he, he gets Christine down into the sewers into his music room yeah she goes wow man how do you lug that piano down there <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. And I kind of laughed and I said, I got a better question for you. How do you keep the damn thing tuned in that damn room? Because <laughs> I can tell you, that's that's hell. <laughs> so the, the 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 but then but then it add, adds to. I'm thinking about it later on, and I'm thinking if they really would if they really were going to do a sequel, hmm. well, all they would have to do is shoot an insert shot of Claude Rains or some body double for him diving under that piano. Yeah, <laughs> having the piano protect him from the falling wall. It's like there you go. Yeah, yeah. Now he's alive. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, a. <laughs> um, I, I, two things I want to say about the mask. Uh, first of all, I think Claude Rains' mask is really badass, and that's I like the way it. I think yes. it's a pretty cool mask. Yes, I agree. It's you know, even though his makeup isn't doesn't even begin to touch you know Cheney's classic makeup. Uh, yeah. The ma- and his face in a mask is very cool. I mean, the way it because they molded it to fit his his own features anyway, and so it's very uh, it's very cool. But but uh, but on the subject of mask, I I did have to laugh at thinking of uh, you know who on the police force when they're you know arranging this you know this uh sting where they're going to catch him or whatever who thought it was a great idea to have all the policemen dress in masks knowing that the guy that they're after 
is a masked <laughs> is a masked man, you know. <laughs> so that is so that you end up with multiple multiple masked men running around. It's like they, they think on the front end they would have seen like that's not a good idea. <laughs> you know that that is a uh, that is a, a bit of a problem that I, I never considered until now. You're right because yeah, because yeah, it didn't take him any time to uh, <laughs> to, to like to, to like kill somebody kill else somebody and replace take their them. mask. Yeah, <laughs> take their take their costume, take their mask. <laughs> So yeah, that's uh, you got you got a good point there, sir. <laughs> you really, really do. Um, I'd like to. Uh, I, I have to admit, the chapter uh, on this film in uh, the uh, the '40s Universal Monsters: A Critical Commentary book spends a lot of time making the art making the argument, going through the you know delineating a number of different uh, start and stops of trying to do a remake of this, mm. and uh, uh, spends a lot of time on the question of. You know whether he was supposed to be her father or not. Uh, almost too much time. But then again, the person writing this particular chapter admits to being a, an opera aficionado, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. I guess that's to be expected to mm-hmm. a degree. But we get down to the we get down to the end of it here. And this fellow, uh, his name is uh, John T. Soyster. I hope, once again, I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly. Mm-hmm. He says, "Tuneful, colorful, and more than occasionally amusing." But no great shakes as a horror film. Universal's reworking of Phantom of the Opera remains well worth one's time. Because of the war, set redecoration was much more on the corporate mind than set construction. Not only was a ton of money saved by using Cheney's old digs and the old Mm, sets, but even the notorious Green Hell Temple was reshaped into Rain's new ones. That's the the huge temple set built for the film Green Hell, Mm. the James Well film. Mm. Sure, it's not completely terrifying to watch Christine's old dad jump through hoops <laughs> and scurry through sewers to make sure she gets the breaks she deserves, but LaRose tell meant to touch the heartstrings as well as freeze the bone marrow could and would do much worse. Surprisingly, although almost always regarded as a qualitative one-up on the rest of the decade's thrillers, the film was not part of either the Shock Theater or Son of Shock programs released to TV in the 50s. Still, Thanks to the people who made this and Technicolor, the 1943 experience is among the most memorable of that decade's offerings at Universal. I would agree with his statement there, mm-hmm. but I would also say, but it's not because of the horror elements. Right, right, right. It has one horror scene mm-hmm. and uh, some thriller elements, mm-hmm. and it's mostly an opera melodrama. Yeah, yeah. Now that's right. okay. Sure. Yeah. Because it's well mounted, mm-hmm. it doesn't overstay its welcome. Mm-hmm. It's entertaining, it's mm-hmm. colorful, it's good to look at. Uh, it it moves well enough. There are some sequences I think that could be that could be that could move along a little better. Mm-hmm. And boy, do I have nits to pick about some of the some of the framing of some of the sequences, some mm-hmm. of the some of the shot mm-hmm. choices. Mm-hmm. But it's beautiful to look at, and I do find it entertaining. So I'm not going to complain about it. You almost used the phrase that I was waiting to. You said "well mounted." I was, I was hoping, that, I was hoping, I was hoping you had a Bosley Crowther review somewhere in there. I have the entire Bosley Crowther Good, review because I'm hoping, I'm counting on Bosley to use the term "handsomely mounted" is what I want to hear. And I just, that, I, I, <laughs> I don't think he uses that. I, oh, I can't believe it. Well, now here, I don't do this often, uh-huh. mainly because uh, although it is possible to look up a look up almost all of Bosley Crowther's. Uh, reviews from the period because they're archived on the New York Times oh, nice. website. Awesome. 
I don't often do that. Yeah. Just because it's sometimes it's better to just read the like the really the really salient yeah uh, right the really salient razor sharp points that he wants <laughs> yeah. to make that he, whatever line he's leading to throughout his review. How sharp is he? Sharpen that nose. He looks down. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, this this is good. If people, if you're unaware of who Nelson Eddy was, uh, he's the, you know he's the male lead in this, and he really was a great singer. I would argue. Not always the best actor. There's a few moments no. in this movie where I think that a better actor could have pulled off mm-hmm. a better mm-hmm. a better line reading here and there. There's at least three or four lines in the movie where I'm thinking, yeah, you're not the best at this, mm-hmm. but you're getting. I mean, he's getting the job done. Mm-hmm. So at the time this comes out, he's just Nelson Eddy is coming off a series of eight movies that he made, I think at MGM, with his uh, longtime co-star, and uh, they were musicals. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was known for this kind of thing. And so this is uh, a bit of a different kind of movie for him. And so that is kind of the the, the piece of information you need to have before mm-hmm. we launch into reading mm-hmm. yes. <laughs> Bosley Crowther's <laughs> review from the period when this film came out. All right. The fact that the name of Nelson Eddy appears at the head of the cast of Universal's The Phantom of the Opera is not to be taken as evidence that Mr. Eddy has finally found his role. He is no phantom in this one. He is very much in solid evidence, and his lungs are working as strongly and as loudly as they've ever worked before. Indeed, you might almost think the picture was made just so he might sing. (laughs) And that is the principal reason why this remake of the old Lon Chaney film is bereft of much of the terror and macabre quality of the original. For now, the role of the phantom has been very much watered down, and Claude Rains has been made to play it in a sort of Lone Ranger style. He is, in this rewritten version of the old Gaston Leroux tale, nothing more than the unsuspected father of an understudy in the opera company who tries very hard and in secret to advance his daughter's career. Now see how he's seen this film in 43, and he is convinced somehow that he's her father. God, could he have seen an advanced print? Who knows? That's bizarre. But then... When his cherished concerto is presumably stolen by a music publisher, he kills the latter, becomes an outcast, and haunts the opera house as a homicidal maniac. Mostly he is seen as a shadow, flitting by on the walls and doing all sorts of murderous mischief so that his daughter may get ahead. Meanwhile, the windy Mr. Eddie is up there on the stage (laughs) singing songs, usually in in company with Susanna Foster, who plays and sings the daughter role quite pleasingly. And when he isn't singing or preparing... He is usually making ponderous love, which is oddly supposed to be funny to Miss Foster, along with Edgar Barry. Mr. Barry is the hi-hat detective who tries to solve the mysteries of the opera house. Together, they make about as boring a pair of rival suitors as we dread to see. (laughs) A lengthy scene from the third act of the opera, Martha, is at the opening of the film, and then Mr. Eddie and Miss Foster sing a fictitious opera based on the themes of Chopin. This is after the opera has drugged the leading soprano's cup. And then, for that memorable sequence in which the phantom drops the huge chandelier on the heads of the glittering audience, but why he did it we'll never know, Mr. Eddie is roaring another opera, based on Tchaikovsky's Fourth Symphony. As a matter of record, this sequence is the only one in the film which, in which the potential excitement of the story is realized. Here, the blend of monstrous violence with the wild Russian music on the stage achieves the realization of terror which is lost in the rest of the yarn. Even the scenes in the catacombs beneath the opera where the, where the Phantom lives receive a kid glove treatment. It is a nice little spot the boy has there. <laughs> to be sure, the production is elegant. Settings and costumes are super fine. 
and and, and photograph and photographed in Technicolor. They all make a lavish display. But that richness of decor and music is precisely what gets in the way of the tale. Who is afraid of a phantom that is billed beneath Mr. Nelson Eddy in the cast? <laughs> there you go. Wow, Bosley. Bosley okay. Crowder. i got to say, now listen, I mean, if he put together this whole father-daughter thing strictly from watching the same film that we did, then i right. got to give him some props, man, because, so that's why, but then I Because they hide one, the ball pretty hard. I know. So, there, I mean, I've not heard, I would just like to know if anybody else out there is listening to this and going like, well, yeah, duh, it's obvious, because I didn't think it was obvious. I no, think you, no. but he's saying it like it's fact. I mean, he's well, like. And that's just it. Like I say, the guy who wrote the, the, yeah. the chapter on, on that in the, uh, the 40s Universal Monsters, a critical commentary book, spends the vast majority of his chapter on this book making his argument that that's the only way to, that's the only way that this film works works is if you read it that way yeah, right yeah. sure yeah yeah and we all both agree that yeah it would have been so much better if they had stuck with that plot oh, line, I agree. you know but yes yeah. but his review it's just taken as read that that's what it is yeah yeah, yeah. So, it really makes me wonder if he saw a version that had that scene in it that that was apparently reveals that and that was later cut I don't know there's not no. and there's really no way for us to no there isn't yeah wow now, to continue quoting from mm. another book, from the Universal Horrors book, The Phantom of the Opera is a textbook example of a class-conscious, B-grade studio hell-bent on turning out a prestige product that could rival the output of its more respected competitors. The film style can best be described as imitation MGM. Infected with the short of awe-inspiring blandness and overblown production values that Louis B. Mayer mistook, mistook for taste, <laughs> audiences who thrilled to the Lon Chaney version were apt to find this version strikingly tame. There are simply no equivalents to the hair-raising moment when Mary Philbin tears the mask off the Phantom, revealing the skeletal ugliness of Cheney's ingenious makeup. Or the fabulous grand ball sequence in which Eric, in a flowing crimson robe and his blood-freezing Grim Reaper mask, shadows the girl and her lover to the opera house rooftop. Now, he's, he's right. Yeah. This, uh, I agree, this, mo- this movie does not, this, this movie leans yeah. pretty far away from the horror stuff mm-hmm. that I wish was there. Yeah. But let's give the movie the due that it's probably worth pointing out, which is uh, Claude Rains' performance is excellent. Yeah, yeah. He's fantastic. Not that I expect anything different oh, from exactly. him. Oh, exactly, yeah. He's never, less, he's never less than excellent in yeah. any, anything I've ever seen him in. Same here. And it is his voice that communicates almost everything that, especially once he's got the mask on. Mm-hmm. It is his voice. It's his performance vocally mm-hmm. that is having to get across a lot mm-hmm. of nuance within what he's doing which is why it is such a shame that that sequence when he's leading Christine down into the catacombs when you're, you're realizing just how good he is at performing without being able to see most of his face yeah. that you know this is like oh yeah this is the guy who was the invisible man of course he had to be this mm-hmm, good he yeah. had to have that yeah. voice he had to be yeah. able to do this but this is uh, this is that moment where it's just like this is where the you know Luke, I am your father. Moment needs to be, yeah, and it ain't there, yeah. And it, it it is a shame because I really that would to me that would elevate this movie almost an entire like on the one to ten scale. It would go from one number to a, the next number up, yeah. If yeah. that were yeah built into the storyline, if that mm-hmm. were made obvious within the film that we see, which is a shame, I think. So, in general, well, first of all. What 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 kind of rating would you give this on a one to ten scale? What do you end up with? This is a tough one because I'm kind of yeah. I'm on the one hand the I want to I, I want to give it full respect for the technical aspects. Oh yeah, uh, of course. Because uh, yeah, the two Oscars, cinematography and art direction, and then the two others that it was nominated for: best sound and best music. 
all those deserved. You know, it's it's and those are the those are in all those categories. It's excellent. Um, on that level, if I was rating it te- on just a technical level, I would probably give it a seven or an eight. You okay. know, but story wise and and just that. It doesn't have anything that brings me back to it, you know. I under, I was yeah. seeing it again. I was brought back in like this. There's a reason I haven't watched this much over the the years, you know. There's just, you know, you know, with you and me, you know, things like you know horror movies. It doesn't take a whole lot to make us return to a film from time to time. Sometimes it can just be a certain performance. Sometimes it can just yeah. be a two or three, just really it can be atmospheric. A, it can be a chilling city. scenes, yeah. yeah, stuff like that. It's just not any of that here, you know. It's just I agree. even though everything looks great, it sounds great, beautiful. There's just no atmosphere to it, you know. There's just no scenes of like that, just that get that tense, you know, or just that you just think like, man, that that was really cool. That was really brought off very well, you know. There's just none of that there, and so that kind of, I said that probably kind of makes me look at it more like a five or a six or something. So I kind of split the difference, and I just gave it a seven, but it's not like a real, it's not a seven that I probably will again just. I'm not going to return too much in my life, you know. It's one of those, if I had a reason to watch it, like I needed to watch an excuse to watch it, I mean, I can enjoy it again, but it's just not something I feel that ever compels me to to revisit it. I'm with you on that. Uh, I, I fluctuate on my, my rating for this film between a 6 and a 7. Yeah, yeah. Because although I don't return to it very often, mm-hmm. um, what, what brings me back is Claude Rains generally and... Mm-hmm. The memory of it being just a bright, colorful yeah, film. Yeah. Uh, but the thing that would, that would keep me from like pushing play on it occasionally yeah, yeah. is my my looking at it going, oh yeah, this is like a full thirty minutes longer than mm-hmm. you know another universal horror film from the yeah. same year that I could throw in and watch right this second. Yeah. Yeah. And so there's a and there's a there's a dampening down of the genre tropes and ideas and atmosphere that I look for mm-hmm. as far as a rewatchability is concerned, as far as that kind of thing that will draw me back in, as you were saying. Yeah. It's like I, I honestly find myself more inclined <laughs> to watch, to rewatch something like Horror Island, which is a mm-hmm. much less well-done, right. well-made film. Right. I, I, I find myself wanting to rewatch that more than mm-hmm. this mm-hmm. simply because it's fast yeah, it's nonsensical. Yeah. it's got silly horror elements. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it, it 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 doesn't overstay its welcome, and mm-hmm. I don't have to worry about you know the 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 feelings occasionally that I get from this movie of the you know, of the, the director dropping the ball on the elements that need to be most yeah. paid attention to. Yeah, but it's a six or a seven for me. It's an opulent, beautiful looking movie, but it doesn't have it doesn't have that element. That will draw me back to it, and that's something mm. that I've known for years. Now. Yeah, because yeah. I haven't watched. I haven't, like I said, I haven't rewatched this. Man, I haven't rewatched this in like 12, 13, 14 mm-hmm. years. Mm-hmm. I can't. Remember, I couldn't remember how long it's been. But at last time, I mean, I can tell you that the last time I watched it was on DVD, mm-hmm. and I've owned the the thing on Blu-ray for a couple of years. And you know, it was last week when I pulled the plastic off of it. Yeah. So, um, just a couple more things to bring up. Um, Oh, was it the song the the the, uh, the lullaby of the bells? Which is no, but bring that up anyway. I, I do love the 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 lullaby of the bells. That composition that, that is was, a really I know that it's a beautiful piece. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, let's be honest. All the musical and all the music in this is wonderful. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, we're we're talking about you know they're they're adapting you know Chopin and, and it's mm-hmm. just like, of course it's it's gorgeous music. But this is the mm-hmm. original piece that was written for the film to be yeah. that little lullaby, this little mm-hmm. thing that uh, Susanna. Remember, and that's see, that's another thing left over in the script that points toward 
him being yes. her father that they never connect. Because it's a folk melody that would have from, drawn them back to the same place. It was from right. a certain place of the yeah. Exactly. Which is the, the reason to have this in there. Yeah. Because that's the lullaby piece that he plays on the violin when he's mm-hmm. trying to keep his job. Mm-hmm. And it's something that she knows from her childhood. It's like, come on, this yeah. is please yeah. keep it in the freaking movie. <laughs> So, yeah. but it but it is a beautiful piece, and I think it was interesting that the composition was re- was released as an accompaniment for piano uh, after the film came out, and proved to be incredibly uh, incredibly lucrative. I mean, they apparently made a lot of money off of selling the sheet music mm-hmm. for that uh, for the Lullaby of the Bells, which yeah. was written for this film. Yeah, there was a couple of times when I just kind of ran it back just to hear that piece apart again where she's singing it there because yep. I just thought it was such a cool piece of music. It's gorgeous. Yeah. It's really great stuff. Yeah, I wanted to ask you this because one of the things I was going to bring up earlier about possible castings and, and reasons why it probably didn't happen, you know, was I is you know just thinking of who Universal was using at that time. I thought Basil Rathbone, but I, I know not only was he heavy into making all the Sherlock Holmes films, but the fact that while he was since he was making the Sherlock Holmes films, that they were pushing him as kind of a good guy now, you know, as That's a good true. guy character that 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 might have gotten. I, I just wonder if his name ever came up, but it did make me want to ask you. Uh, because I know that you and, and Beth uh, uh, listen to a lot and a lot of uh, radio programs. Oh, yeah. They did a radio program version of this movie that had Nelson Eddy and Susanna Foster and Basil Rathbone in the Claude Rains role. They did a radio version. I just wondered if you've ever heard that. I listened to about half of it, and I uh-huh. will have to say that I, I love Basil Rathbone, but mm-hmm. it, it, it doesn't, I need to listen to the rest of it. Uh-huh. It doesn't sound like one of his best performances. Okay. And it could be that the version I was listening to was, I mean, well, no, I can't say that because mm-hmm. the other rest of the cast sounds, it, Basil sounds distracted. Really? Just <laughs> yeah, not, not, not I wonder, if it, I wonder if it may have been a bad night. Could have been. Could have been. And remember, these things yeah. are done live. Yeah, so true. Yeah. I, I don't know. But the thing is, yeah, you're right. He would have he would have been a good choice. But at that point, mm-hmm. you don't want to cast him as a bad guy when mm-hmm. next month he yeah. is uh-huh. Sherlock Holmes again. Yeah. Yeah. Um, also, uh, the other thing I wanted to we should mention just because we've thrown this out here a few times and I'm guessing most of the people here listening to this episode already know this but we've mentioned a few times the plans to do a sequel the sequel was going to be the climax which we will get to eventually in this in this series yeah. it did get made but not as a sequel to this film and kind of as a remake it's going to be interesting when we see it if we find ourselves saying a lot of the same stuff about that as we say about this that's another one I haven't watched in quite a while so, uh, so it'll be interesting when we get to that to see if we find ourselves repeating kind of our critiques and our Compliments that we've given to this film tonight uh, to give to the climax, but yes, the climax was going to be the original, the sequel to this film. Yep, yep. And they, uh, there was originally talk of having Boris Karloff in a version of this when they were kicking around the script in the late in the late thirties. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, you get to the the 
no longer a sequel to The Phantom yeah. of the Opera. <laughs> yeah. And you have it starring Boris Karloff. <laughs> yeah. You know, with silvered hair. He's yeah. <laughs> looking all great ghostish there. <laughs> One thing that I think is funny is that the Universal Horrors book points out that there have been all these different versions of Phantom of the Opera made, even when they weren't admitting to it. Right, yeah. Uh, there was a... <laughs> Uh, there was a, a, a Santo movie, Santo against the uh, against the Strangler, or kind of Santo versus the Strang- oh, Strangler, yeah. Strangler, in 1966, mm. which I've seen. Yeah, me too. And uh, while watching it years ago, I was mm. like, "Well, this is basically a Phantom." Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it's like, oh yeah, that's true. Yeah. Uh, uh, and something that had not really occurred to me because I haven't rewatched this movie in a long time, but the. Uh, the 1971 version of Murders in the Room Org is really just Phantom of the Opera. Yeah, that's a good point. That sure is. Sure is. And it's and what's funny about it is it's once again a Herbert Long kind of yeah. in that role. Yeah. That he played like nine years earlier for Hammer. <laughs> so, right. and I need to go back and rewatch that. I haven't watched that in a very long time. Then of course we both mentioned the our, our beloved Phantom of the Paradise oh, from yes. Brian De Palma, which is just such a great film. Yeah. Uh, there was a, a TV version with Maximilian Schell yeah, uh, and Jane that. Seymour, which sounds like it could be interesting. I would yeah, I would, I would yeah, I wouldn't mind saying that. But once again, there's all, like there, there's also versions of it that have just popped up where they've just kind of adapted it comedically for different mm. television shows or adapted it uh, in mm. kind of a broad strokes way for for dramatic shows as well. Mm-hmm. Um, over the years, I mean, it's just one of those things that seeped into the general consciousness for obvious reasons. Mm-hmm. You don't make you don't make four or five film versions of something and not have some kind of tie into the general public mm-hmm. imagination. Mm-hmm. So yeah, mm-hmm. of course. Well, let's get to the other critics from the time yes, period. We've already we've already wallowed in Bosley. <laughs> <laughs> there's a there's a phrase you weren't expecting. Wallowed in Bosley. We wallowed in Bosley. <laughs> okay, this is from uh, the Hollywood Reporter in '43. In every way, it is vastly superior entertainment. You can call it a rare musical treat, an arresting, beautiful spectacle in the magnificence of its Technicolor photography, or a handsomely performed psychological melodrama. So I think they liked it. They did. And this is going to be weird because we're going to get some good reviews here. Mm. Uh, From Variety, August 13th, 1943. Phantom of the Opera is essentially a great theater. Oh, I'm sorry. Phantom of the Opera is essentially great theater, and here it gets magnificent treatment to set it up as one of the foremost money-making film entertainments of the year. From adroit showmanship and highest skills from all, production departments to back up the superb performances. Oh, well, that's that's Bosley. We've we've done Bosley. Mm -hmm. Uh, Harrison's Report, August 21st, 1943. A good entertainment, the sort that will direct an appeal to all types of audiences. Unlike the original version, which was a thriller of the horror type, this version has been altered in a way that makes it more of a musical than a thriller. It does, however, retain the horrific flavor of the original, but to a lesser degree. Uh, The New York Herald Tribune, October 15th, 1943. Howard Barnes. This remake of a screen classic has both sound and fury. The music selections are pleasant, if a bit loud. The violence with Claude Rains in the original Cheney role is first rate. The violence is first rate. <laughs> uh, okay. Now, I need to kick yeah. back a beer or two with, with Howard Barnes just <laughs> yeah. to see what he thought about certain other things. Yeah. <laughs> the violence is first, it's first rate. rate. <laughs> this is uh, this is an interesting little side road within this 
1940s Universal Horrors, once again, uh, it doesn't completely fit. It's got enough elements that okay, yeah, 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 yeah. It's not, I'm not, I'm not going to be, you know, mm-hmm. not going to be hidebound about it. I mean, if we're accepting the the first three Sherlock Holmes films because they're included in the in the mm-hmm. book Universal mm-hmm. Horrors, mm-hmm. okay, yeah, sure, why yeah. not? It's, it's 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 part of the run, and of course, it certainly is a remake of a horror film, regardless of how much horrific uh, texture is retained in yeah. this particular version of the story. But I, I was, let's just put it this way. I was entertained by this movie, mm-hmm. but I do know, as we've already discussed, it'll be a long time before I rewatch this. Yeah, I would, I'd love to know if there's any quote unquote, mon, you know, monster kid, you know, people of our, you know, either age or older or who consider ourselves, you know, these classic monster fans who just love this film as a child, you know, loved, or even yeah. any Phantom films, really. You know, I didn't see any of them as a child. I mean, I really didn't see, I think the first one I ever saw was the classic Cheney. Right. I think one night that I think they showed it on public television or something, but right. I was probably already into my at least early teens. I was very, of course, all, all, all of us, you know, grew up being very aware of the Phantom because every monster magazine and film book, monster film book Correct. always showed the Cheney Phantom. Sometimes it would show the Phantoms from the other movies. We were aware of the character and some kids probably even ran around playing Phantom without having actually seen the movie. But, you know, I, none of the films to me seem you know like ones that that a a a kid who was who was going nuts over the frankenstein monster and the wolfman and the dracula would necessarily gravitate it didn't seem like that these movies would fire their imagination the way those did but it would be interesting to know if there's anybody out there who's like oh yeah when i was a kid that that was my favorite monster or something like that you know well i mean it's it's interesting to this day um when they do when they do like a, a series of toys or figures of uh of uh, Universal Monsters, if they go out, if they if they include the Phantom, then it's almost always the 1925 version. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, like those those little mini those little mini figures that uh, mm-hmm. that we have downstairs in front of uh, that we have downstairs mm-hmm. in front of our television. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you look if you look at those in that that set, the Phantom is the uh, there were like two versions of the Phantom, one you know in black and white mm-hmm. in uh, his normal like mm-hmm. Phantom costume, and then. Mm-hmm. One where he's in red, and from the you know the the, yeah, ma- right. the mask, the mask sequence. Right, yeah. And so, I I'll, the more I think about it, I can't remember ever seeing a a toy or a figure of yeah. the Claude Rains version of the Phantom of the Opera. It's yeah, I don't even know if when they did those uh, when for a while they you know they were doing the um, sideshow. I think it was whatever yeah, was yeah. doing those twelve inch. I mean, now they may figures that maybe they did a maybe they did a Rains Phantom at some point. You know, but but again, you were getting into you know again now. When they're doing figures of everything out there, there's well, probably figures yeah. of that. There may be even a figure of the Herbert Lom out there, which, right in general, for you know, that's only been a thing of the real hyper collectible, you know, kind that's of the high end world stuff. High end yeah. stuff. That's a good word for it, you know. But it's yeah, in general, whenever they mass produce a Universal monsters merchandising in any way, it's always going to be the the Cheney. If, if they did, if they dip that far into, yeah, right, it, even I mean, if they do it at all, if yeah. if they if they do a Phantom at all, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now I almost feel like. The Phantom, the, the the classic Aurora model Phantom. Yeah, that's it. Wasn't that more along the lines of the the silent film? I guess it was. Yeah, yeah, you're right. It was. It was. I'm thinking of the mask. It's holding up. Almost kind of looked a little bit. But you're right. It is. That's that's like the classic. You're right. That's the classic. Uh, it's Cheney one too. So yeah. 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 Well, uh, this does not in any way dethrone the 25 version. No. Uh, from being uh, kind of the still the best. Uh, version of the story that's been put on screen so far um but 
the thing is, it's like uh, like any remake that I find entertaining enough. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just glad they're retelling the story. I don't mm. mind it at all. Yeah, exactly. If you don't like it, you don't like it. You just That's move right. on. Yeah. There's something you can learn from some other people. Huh? <laughs> you don't like it, you just move on. It's okay. <laughs> Guess what? In a few years, somebody else going to make another version. You can bitch about that one. Yeah. It's okay. And talk about how the one you're bitching about now is so much better. Yeah, no, it's, <laughs> I know. The, the reevaluation of things long after the fact, mm. I, don't get me wrong. I find myself, you know, being indifferent to certain movies and mm. then decades later looking mm. back on them and going, you know, actually now, this is, mm. I, I, I mm. kind of appreciate this thing now. Mm. Yeah, oh yeah. But the... Uh, <clears throat> I, I, I'm I'm surprised and shocked sometimes people will be looking back on a film and uh, I, I know what the general consensus was at the time about those this particular movie and now it's looked back on and all 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 I, all I can hear for, like, like my my favorite example of that would be the 1980 film Flash Gordon yeah right which got nothing oh, but raked over the oh, coals. they hated the film it, it was, hated that it was film despised yeah. it was just despised it was just yeah. held up as this laughable piece of garbage and it's mm-hmm. like I was young enough to, to know no this is fun <laughs> this is really fun don't you get the idea This is, don't you understand the spirit of this mm-hmm. and it was actually years later mm-hmm. uh, having you know having watched that film so many times mm-hmm. that I read the original uh, comic strips and realized oh shit they were really trying to yeah. they were really adapting to go for stuff. That, that they feel, were really yeah. really mm-hmm. doing that storyline mm-hmm. oh my lord they really were and just having that much more appreciation for it and it's like now you know 40 years later mm-hmm. It's like the general consensus. Oh yeah, Flash Gordon just a, such a great film. It's like you weren't there. I get that yeah. you were not there because all I heard, uh-huh. all I heard throughout my teenage years yeah. was just how shitty a film that was. And I'm just like, what? Yeah. No, it's not a shitty yeah. film. Are you insane? Don't get me wrong. It could have been better because they rushed a lot of stuff. But still, come on. Still, I, I uh, the 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 after the fact, I used to. Years ago, we'd refer to it as the Doppler effect. Yeah. You know, that whole thing yeah. of, you know, wow, everything's better in the rearview mirror, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, it kind of is, isn't it? Yeah, you know why? Because you, you don't have to suddenly produce a hot take on the thing that just happened. <laughs> yeah. Ah, right. In other words, you've had some time to think about it. Oh, well, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> All right, well, folks, um, I guess we'll wrap this up. The next film that Troy and I will be covering in the uh, 40s Universal Horror thread of stories here uh, takes us back to the Sherlock Holmes films yes. with Basil Rathbone yep. and Nigel Bruce. But we finally get mm. to the movies that I have been waiting to get to, the films that I just love dearly. We finally get to the ones that are tinged with horror. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Yep. Next Looking time out, that. 1943's Sherlock Holmes Faces Death. Will he survive? Well, yeah, there were a bunch of other movies right after <laughs> but that's You get the idea. Yeah. So we'll cover that the next time we come back here to the uh, Bloody Pit. Also, later this year, we'll be covering another uh, Lucio Fulci film. Mm-hmm. Uh I'm, ho- I'm hoping I can still keep my eye on the ball and we'll and we'll do conquest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what we're yeah because yeah we're aiming to get to that one. See it, uh, see it, see if the Blu-ray has a uh, has a filter on it that allows you to remove all the the fog, <laughs> which I have my doubts about. <laughs> and uh, we're gonna get back to uh, doing a little uh, something a little interesting over on the Nashi cast as well. So keep mm. your ears peeled for that too. 
oh, that's right. I, I almost forgot. We've got a piece of mail we want to read out. Oh, I was going to say goodbye. You were right. <laughs> I, kept, I kept nodding my head over to our huge barrel of, of letters over there that we had to turn. You know, I kept like... Well, there's, well there's, there's one I'm going to hang on to because it pertains specifically to Space 1999, and it's really just a just a bit of a joke. But okay. well, maybe I won't hold on to it, but still, I'll, I'll, we've, got, we've got this one that pertains to us. So. Okay. <laughs> Dark Perkins. <laughs> he says, Hello, Rod. I've just messaged the Nashi cast now, and here I am with something suitable for the bloody pit. He says, I don't think the pit has covered the Toho movie, The Great Prophecies of Nostradamus. Mm. I've known about it for years as it's featured in the Psychotronic Encyclopedia in its cut and chopped U.S. version, The Last Days of Planet Earth, which I found, quote unquote, on the internet. Toho is very strict on taking down any versions as they recalled the film shortly after release due to complaints from survivors and family members of the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombings. I saw the cut version, and it features very disturbing Atomic Mutants, which is a bit tone-deaf for a Japanese company, but the full-length version goes well beyond that. The US, uh, the, the U.S. cut version is extremely interesting, seeming to throw everything against the wall. Giant slugs, killer plants, cannibals, mutants, suicide cults, but the original version is a masterpiece. It's a shame Toho will never release it, but it's understandable, and how a film like this ever got past the script stage is puzzling, to say the least. And uh, that's from Lee, and uh, he signs it, er, I mean, uh, Dr. John Smith. He's trying to remain uh, incognito comically. <laughs> so uh, I know, I've never seen this film. Have you? I have only heard of it, only heard of it under that uh, The Last Days of Planet Earth title. I've okay. heard that title. I've seen that referred to it, and I almost feel like Possibly, I remember it even uh, maybe playing the theaters, you know, because I, I know that, but I may be confusing it with something else. But I mean, no, I've never seen it. It does sound fascinating. <laughs> it sounds like something I'd love to get my hands it, on. Me too, see. me too, man. But it's, well, well, that's a, sounds like it's about to, it sounds about likely getting releases, let's say, The Song of the South or something. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good point there. Yeah, it uh, does seem like a, uh, a similar place to, to have been. If is all yeah, it could be like a one to one. Some of the South is to Disney, yeah, yeah. as the the, 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 pro, the great prophecies of Nostradamus is to <laughs> Toho. Yeah, it could be a one to one on that one. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Okay, well, no, neither of us have seen it, but I, I tell you what, uh, I will see if I can get my hands on copies. As I nod at Troy, yeah, and uh, maybe that's something we can do later this year. Yeah, let's let's let's, let's see what we can dig up there. So, Lee, you may have inspired an episode of the show. <laughs> Don't be surprised. It happens yeah. a lot. Yes, that's right. But uh, thank you for writing to us. If you have, if you want to write to us as well, please feel free. Uh, one last brief little email that I was actually going to save, but I, I think it's, it, it's short and it's funny. Okay. This is from uh, Kenneth. He says, I, uh, this is uh, in reference to the episode uh, we did, I did on uh, Space 1999 with John <laughs> Kenneth Muir. Uh-huh. He says, uh, it's, it's from Kenneth. He says, uh, uh, I read a transcript of an interview with Catherine Schell about Space 1999. She said, and this is just, this is, remember, this is from the actress. She said, I knew who I had to fuck to get on the show. <laughs> After a few episodes, she said she was thinking, who do I have to fuck to get off this show? <laughs> oh, that's, that's good stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He he titled this uh, this email "Space 1999 Funny Facts." So he adds a second one, which is uh, in the episode "Beta Cloud," which I haven't seen. I don't think it's from the second season. I guess uh, when Tony throws the fire extinguisher at the monster in the hydroponics vault, he accidentally hits the actor in the monster suit in the balls. 
You can see him grab his balls and fall over and say fuck. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Enjoy, Kenneth. Oh, that's okay. Well, that, now that's worth looking up. Now, yeah, guess what? Yeah, yeah, guess what? I'll be watching in the next few days the yeah. Space 1999 <laughs> episode in which the monster gets hit in the balls. <laughs> I must, I must see this. Yes, this sounds sounds amazing. <laughs> and uh, that that particular quote from Catherine Shell. Oh. let's just say that doesn't surprise me. She's uh, she's always been uh, a woman willing to speak her mind, but it's, she's she's usually. Uh, She's usually a little circumspect in the comment the comments that she will sling out there in public about certain things. But I think as she's gotten older, she's gotten to the point where yeah, she didn't care like, anymore. Yeah, <laughs> she's probably like everybody. Most of the people from that time who I worked with are probably already dead. Yeah, yeah anyway. Like, so. Whatever, who cares? <laughs> well, folks, once again, you can contact us by email by writing to us at thebloodypit at gmail.com. We'll be glad to hear from you. And uh, you might get read out on the mm. air here if you're funny enough. Yeah, that's right. If you come up with a story that includes mm. the F word, hey, guess <laughs> what i'm gonna read it out yeah yeah because that's broadcast gold right there <laughs> that that's ratings money. that's ratings money yeah. that's like that's just like somebody throwing hundreds at well us. yeah as our friend john hudson would say an excuse to print money that's right. <laughs> exactly <laughs> but uh once again thank you for listening to the show we'll be back as we said soon we've got plans for uh new fresh episodes uh i can hardly believe it's 150 episodes. I was going to say, I noticed that I looked at my notes and I noticed I got to say everything I wanted to say, which means after 150 episodes, I think I'm starting to get the hang of this. <laughs> <laughs> it, 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 it took you a while. Uh, it took a Damn. while. It took a while. <laughs> t- I've been tired of like leading you along, uh, man, nursemaid. You know, it's, it's been pathetic. 150 more, I might even be professional. <laughs> you might yeah, you might eke up to semi-pro <laughs> or something. Semi-pro. I don't know. <laughs> Let me give you that status now. So. <laughs> Uh, But, folks, thank you once again for listening to the show. Join us again next episode. I am Rod Barnett. I'm Troy Gwynn. And we will talk to you again soon. I started a joke Which started the whole world crying But I didn't see That the joke was on me Oh no And I started to cry Which started the whole world laughing Oh if I'd only see That the joke was on me
died Which started the whole world living Oh, if I could only see That the joke was on me That the joke was on me 